if our field is really driven about profit, about grant money, about research money, versus what are we doing to really raise and train and recruit the next generation of clinicians because it's needed? There's so much scarcity and so much top-down power over in the process. So if you come from a background where a lot of these structures are played out, it just re-traumatizes. We're all familiar with the idea that being a therapist comes with the obligation to do your own work. It's maybe even reached the point of cliche by now. In this case, it happens to be a cliche I agree with. And if you're listening to this podcast, I'm guessing you do too. But what happens when the institutions and systems that train us, employ us, and regulate us act as barriers to us actually doing that self-work? I'm Reva Stout, and you're listening to A Therapist Can't Say That, the show where we talk about the things it feels like a therapist can't say. On this episode, I'm talking with psychotherapist and certified leadership coach Rebecca Ching. In addition to doing therapy and coaching, Rebecca has a lot of experience with supervision, teaching, and advocacy in this field, so I was excited to invite her on to have a conversation about dysfunctional mental health workplace culture. I'm sure that for most of you, when I say those words, dysfunctional mental health workplace culture, a number of experiences, memories, horror stories immediately rise up before your mind's eye. And One of the things this discussion with Rebecca really illuminated for me is how normalized those awful experiences are, how accepted it still is that clinicians go into their workplaces and come out harmed. So how did we get here? You're going to hear me and Rebecca exploring some of those inputs from the vulnerabilities that we bring with us into this work that may predispose us to getting sucked in by and participating in creating these damaging workplace cultures, to who is allowed into the field in the first place by the gatekeepers of graduate degree programs, to the impact of financial constraints and poverty wages, to the differing agendas that agencies and government institutions and insurance companies have that are sometimes in real conflict with therapist and client well-being. We're going to dive into all of that and into the way all of those factors contribute to this landscape in our field where it's really hard to live up to one of the core directives, which is this idea that we should be honestly and courageously dealing with our own shit. And in my next episode, I'm going to explore more about that double bind where we are being told that we need to do our own work as a central piece of being a therapist, while at the same time, the institutions that dominate this field are in many ways actively thwarting that. Just a note to contextualize some of the terminology you'll hear us using, Rebecca and I are both trained in internal family systems therapy, IFS, which if you're not familiar with it, is an approach that views human consciousness as having inherent multiplicity, that it's useful to engage with ourselves, not just as a singular eye, but as networks of parts that have unique qualities, viewpoints, and roles. You'll hear Rebecca talking about the idea of the U-turn, which is a phrase often used in IFS circles to capture the idea of returning our curiosity and attention to what's going on inside of us rather than only externally when we encounter activating situations. So just wanted to frame our conversation by sharing a little anecdote about why I wanted to 
to do this uh, episode about mental health workplaces and all the dysfunctional stuff that can come up uh, in those contexts. So the story is when I was in grad school, our, our very last class that we had to do was about uh, you know career development or whatever. And so they had two therapists come in, um, you know, pretty new, uh, fairly recent graduates, I think, you know, maybe three or four years out um, into their careers to come in and talk to us about, you know, their early career journey. Um, and they had uh, one person who was in private practice and then the other person who was in community mental health. Uh, we sat there, you know, in this classroom about to graduate. We're about to be out there on the scene. You know, everyone has imposter syndrome. Nobody feels certain of themselves. Um, and they have this, this therapist who is currently at that time working in community mental health, telling her story. And her story was that, you know, she was working at a, at a local agency that she was two years in. And be, because of the high turnover, she was already the senior clinician on staff there. And she spun us this long terrible, terrifying tale about how, you know, burnt out she was and how uh, so the job had been so stressful that she went to the doctor and her hair was falling out. And he said, you have to slow down or your job is going to kill you. Uh, and, you know, had to get on psychiatric meds and all of this stuff. Um, and of course, we're all sitting there horrified um <laughs> like is this is this what's awaiting us um but in retrospect i'm like that was very real like that is so many people's stories and so the reason i wanted to share that story is just because i i think it's such a it's such a common story and it's such a common experience or some version of that is such a common experience um and i think it's very much an open secret in the field um but i think it's something that we don't talk about publicly very often, certainly not outside the field very often, um, how difficult and how much negative impact working inside like a mental health workplace can have uh, for, you know, a variety of reasons. So yes, I'm just I'm really feeling this in my body as you share mm -hmm. this. And I think it's more than an open secret in some circles. I, I, I will say maybe in the recent years, we're reckoning a little bit more overtly but I don't I think it's more like celebrated or kind of like mm. deal that's the mm -hmm. way it is mm -hmm. and and to question it is to almost question your mission and vision to be a therapist like if you don't get on board with this system of getting your hours or really serving those that you want to serve if you're pushing this is what you got to do this is the gig and any kind of pushback around that is almost a failure on your end versus this system that's, you know, helps us not only get our hours and get licensed, but also have a career. So the folks that are trying to help people heal, even go into these jobs burnt out and exhausted. I mean, I crawled the finish line in grad school and I was told you made it <laughs> versus what do we need to do differently about this program? <laughs> you know, yes, expectations, yes. right? And you're right, just we asked, and I, I'm grateful, though, I think that is the truth. And I'm starting to see glimmers, because I do a lot of consultations with folks getting certified in various theories and approaches. I'm starting to get glimmers of community mental health 
redefining that, but Mm -hmm. they are the unicorns still. They're still the unicorns and they're getting staff exhausted, even if they're Mm -hmm. having a model that's different. And um, Mm -hmm. so in California, I don't know how the insurance model is set up, but in any agency here in the state, and this is why I realized my system could not handle working at an agency because it's so scarcity driven. But when one of my supervisors said, hey, you have to be perfect in your notes because the state budget has a line item to come and take money back that they've given us. And so they're going to look for every mistake to get that money. So it's literally in their money, in their budget, in the state budget to get money back from these agencies that are already strapped working with populations that have very little access to quality care or care at all. And so I thought, oh, no, that, that'll take me because I've got my perfectionist parts and my follow the rule parts were like, this will do me in already, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and that system is like, this is backwards. And I started talking about that. I'm like, y'all, this is messed up. And I'm like, that's just the way it is. And and when I hear that, I'm like, I'm out. <laughs> Someone just says, that's the way it is. I'm like, nope, I'm out. Yeah, I there's so many great things in what you just said. I think the piece about it being a ba- like a badge of honor or a badge of pride mm-hmm. to get to that level of just, you know, the destruction of one's health and well-being in the course of the work and even getting to the point of graduation and all that that we're I think that's a great point that we're not only uh burning people out in the job, but that we're sending people into the field already wrecked, you know, Mm -hmm. by this experience of grad school in so many ways. Um, And that, you know, it seems like to me, there's on one hand, there's there can be so much uh, shame that one, you know, if somebody can't handle it, right? Like the idea that like, oh, you know, I have this, you know, 35 hours a week caseload and I'm supposed to be getting my notes done in the other five hours somehow and all of this and I'm wrecked and I'm just, you know, um, treading water here and compassion fatigue and all the things that happen. There can be so much shame around being that impacted. And yet it's also there's like a martyrship aspect to it that it's there's a sense that you're supposed to embrace um, that somehow I'm uh, I'm sacrificing myself for the good of these clients. Right. And I went to seminary for my grad program. So you throw mm. in the faith community piece around the martyr piece. Yes. It was thick. Mm-hmm. It was thick. And there was a lot of just little phrases that were thrown in to exhaustion. And there was a lack of questioning because it just, again, it starts with the system to even get licensed and, you know, all these little things that we have to check. And I remember saying, you know, I don't. I need to get, we have to get in California to get 3000 hours to Mm -hmm. even apply for your exam. I remember thinking, I don't want my clients to be numbers. I don't want to be dollar signs. and I don't want them to be numbers. I do need to chart. And every week I had hours signed off when I was moving towards licensure. Um, And I, I, whenever I would supervise folks too, I would say, listen, you've got hours to get, but when you have a human in front of you, they're not an hour, they're not a dollar sign. We have to fight for that. But, you know, even when you're in that associate in between phase, there's such a financial cut you take. And depending on the support systems you have or don't have, it's hard not to try and push through that, too. So there's a lot of like just to not be burnt out, to not be exhausted and then to sit with what we sit with every day, you know, and, right. that, you know, and to deal with how that activates what's in us and just, again, be told, well, 
this is the gig, you know, you know, go on a hike. I remember they would like have hikes or have like a pizza <laughs> night. And I'm like, right. No, I need hard cash and time. Off. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. And skills and skills. I wanted to deepen my skills, but I didn't want to just take the test to get the grade, you know? And so, so yeah, I could save so much. So you've done quite a bit of supervision, it sounds like in your career. So I would imagine then you've seen people, all kinds of people working in all kinds of different workplaces in this field, community mental health, all the things. Um, so I'm curious about what some of the themes are, you know, in terms of, you know, we've talked about the martyrship piece um, and the going for a hike, I think is such a, a classic, like, you know, do this little self-care activity as, you know, put this tiny Band-Aid on, you know, this huge systemic uh, problem. And that's absolutely still, I think, very much the the party line is do the self-care and that should be that should be adequate. Um, and and I'm curious, like what what else you've seen? What are some of the other themes that you've seen come up in a lot of these workplaces that contribute to just the struggles and, and the, the dysfunctional environments that, you know, get created? Yeah, I don't want to let myself off the hook here either, because I had a group private practice for nine years. And it was only towards the last few years, I started realizing, even just the business model and the system that set up that everyone else was doing some version of I'm like, this doesn't feel right. But there's like this trend to ask for your devotion. You know, there's just it's Mm -hmm. like, and I've been thinking about that as I've been reflecting on those years. And there's a lot of legal ramifications around that, too. But there's this kind of, a, you know, your devotion and that if you set boundaries, mm-hmm. you're not all in. Right. Or you don't care. I would say this is more for those that are working in community mental health, because, you know, in, in private practice, it can also be a place where folks can skate by and hide. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, and not yeah. step up their their yes. their need for doing good business practices and yeah. and ethical legal things too. But mm-hmm. it, with community mental health, it often feels like because private practice, you know, while in theory, if you're successful in private practice, right, you can generate more income even uh, even in your pre license stage, right? Yes. Um, yeah. But, and this is my husband reminds me of this lovingly, not not in a jerky way. But <laughs> when we talk about those beginning days, he was like, what would you have done if you weren't married to me? Because we lived off his salary. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was able just to spaciously grow my practice and go to the trainings and read my books and plan the groups. And it was still a lot. But I I look back and I just am humbled and convicted of it wasn't that's not the norm. And so and I still, you know, had debt. I still I took out student loans and, mm-hmm. you know, so I you know brought debt into my marriage, <laughs> too. Right. And um, and so I think that there isn't an acknowledgement of how stressful things are because of there's it, a lot of it comes down to money, right? So in the community mental health space, they're, they're relying on grants and state and federal right. funding. And so there's always that time sensitive label. And then you, you go here in California, right? The state's always auditing and checking. Yeah. So there's that energy already there. And there really isn't a cultivation of, community or connection to our own kind of wounds that got us in the field like right you show me a therapist that's like my life was 
awesome. Just wanted to get into this just to you know help people. I thought it'd be a nice altruistic thing to do. No, uh-huh. right? And so, and, and, and I actually have a deep respect for that. You know, I'm, de- I'm one of those people. But if we don't do, it was we talking, you, you and I both are IFS therapists. So we don't do that YOU turn and really sit with that. But yeah. we're in this profession that has, requires a lot of performative, a lot of checking the boxes and what we, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of work and a lot of labor, but not a how are you. Right. And, and even that dynamic with supervision, sometimes that pits the supervisor can be so supportive, but it's and the work that's happening with supervisor to supervisee, but then that is can often be what's best in that situation can be pitted against the business and right. organizational stuff. And oh, so it, it's just at the same time, really important work's happening and helping people too. But it's just it, 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 there's a toll. We've got we have a mental health crisis. We've been saying that even before COVID, and not just as a headline. Um, and I don't think people really understand all that goes into our field. And I think also there's a reflection of the stigma still around mm-hmm. mental health and not people valuing um, what we do and the skill that's required in it uh, to really be good at it and to really have good boundaries and not take on everything that we listen to and and, and to be, you know, full complex human beings in the process. I'd love to go back to the piece that you said too about just the wounds that brought us into this work because to me that is so key. Uh, I don't think it's something we're addressing as a professional culture. No. I think you know I talked to um, you know in my, the last interview I did uh, with Nancy Jane Smith about how I think it's something that people are talking about certainly somewhat in their own personal therapy or maybe if they have an amazing supervisor, right? Mm-hmm, um, that mm-hmm. stuff is coming up. But as a professional culture, we're not addressing um, what we're coming in with. Um, and I think that that, uh, that has a huge impact on the, the workplace cultures that, that we are co-creating. You know, I think, um, you know, when you brought up the piece about, uh, about, you know, the state or the funders, whoever is, has their hands in, you know, the quality control and funding aspect, right, is always, uh, is the specter of that is always there. Is it going to all get taken away? Are we doing a good enough job? Are we going to get in trouble, right? I think getting in trouble is a really big, huge thing that's sitting over this field all the time. And I think it's very activating. Yes. And it's very activating because of the type of person who goes into this work in the first place, right? It's like we are people who played certain roles in our families. We carry our own wounds about the idea of, you know, making sure everything is okay and we're doing it right. And, you know, nobody's going to get really mad and what is the authority figure going to do? I don't think there's very many people in this work who are coming in healed around that stuff. And so what is that authority? You know, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. right. Exactly. And so what is that? What does that mean? Right? About the about the the workplace cultures that we're creating? Um, How does that trickle down? I think there's a lot there. Well, you know, it wasn't too long ago, it clicked that the licensing board here in California, the ones that like we have to write our checks to and you know the ones that people can report us to, that their main goal is to protect the consumer from us. 
Right. And so I remember bringing that to my former team. I'm like, y'all, the folks that we that give us our license are protecting. So, you know, the consumer from us, that's jacked up. It's jacked up in one that even has to be there. So what is happening? What are folks that have our credentialing doing that that actually mm-hmm. has to be a thing? And then how do we work in a situation where who's got our back? Who's, right. you know, who who's looking out for us? So, so I think that, and this may be kind of jumping ahead, but to me, I started really thinking about this, like who is actually getting into these programs? What's the vetting mm. process? What's the funding to help, you know, this be accessible, but no, majority of our schools are businesses. Yes. It's a business. And I was so mad. I was starting to look around and feeling quite judgy. And and I and I want to say this isn't about someone individually, but it there are some things that <laughs> there's some certain skill sets and values and ethics and and certain things that I think are important that there's a reason why our field has a bad reputation. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of it that ha- doesn't have to do with our field, but some of it does. And mm-hmm. I think a big part of it starts with our educational institutions. And I remember even, this is kind of jumping to the burnout piece, but one of my supervisors in um, the final year of my practicum, where we, you pay your school, thing, you know, right? You pay your school and then you go work for free at a place while you're paying your yes. school. Yes. So that's, that's a thing. That's a thing mm-hmm. that is getting pushed back, at least in the courts here in California. But mm-hmm. he said, you know, this is a good thing to be burned out, just like medical school. It'll vet people uh, out who shouldn't be. And I remember sitting back going, huh, I don't agree. I don't agree. There was a part of me that's like, yeah, I'm going to make it. I'm going to finish this. No <laughs> one's going to take me out. And then right. upon further reflection, I realized how jacked up that is. So. I, I do think that this element of the the if, if our field is really driven about profit, about grant money, about research money versus what are we doing to really raise and train and recruit the next generation of clinicians because it's needed? Is there is there a way to interweave profit and grant research and innovate? You know, all yes, I'm sure there is, you know. So I, I, I just think there's so much scarcity and so much um, top down, like the the power over in the process. So it's it just perpetuates harm. So if you come from like you touched on a background where a lot of these structures are played out, it just re-traumatizes. I think, yeah, so a couple of things that you touched on, you know, the way that the groundwork for the professional culture gets laid in grad school, I think is a really important piece. The other piece that you were saying, I think that is a very taboo topic about who is who gets into the profession, who is who is gate, you know, allowed through the gate, because the gatekeepers are the the admissions programs like the pro you know the people who do admissions for grad school those are the gatekeepers of who ends up in the field and i think it's taboo because i don't think you know i certainly know a number of wonderful therapists who deserve to be here and are doing amazing work and i don't want to to have it be construed of saying like you know there's a bunch of people who shouldn't you know you shouldn't have gotten through the gate or whatever but i think it does there's certainly a lot of people being kept out who would be incredible therapists who are not being allowed through for whatever reason. Well, finances for one. 
And I think it's like, if you can afford it, they'll take you in. Because I remember, you know, my school and seeing other schools kind of brag about their large classes. Those were, that was a bragging rate to have these big classes. And, but I'm like, what are you doing to care for them and care for the professors? You know, because right. you got all these ad. Because I've been an adjunct oh professor, and yes. they pay adjuncts nothing, right? That's a whole thing too. In lawsuits totally. were happening at one of the schools I worked with. I got a check in the mail, apparently for some, for something around adjunct, you know, fees and labor. But I think it's just how are we looking at the labor too? But if we've commodified right. it, mental health so much, right? And again, I'm not opposed to someone making a really good living, impact helping other people thrive and heal. I remember saying when I was at the agency I worked at saying, all of us at this table are like total newbies and we're working with some of the most high, the highest level of acuity here. And there's something interesting that you got the most vulnerable in our population gets the least amount of experience. Now at this site, there was an incredible nurse and a couple supervisors were amazing, but that's, they were just a couple people in this, you know, huge you know house it was like a crisis house in between house and i just remember thinking that doesn't bode well for our field or for those that are suffering right that are under housed that um, have severe mental health issues and also are, are are impoverished too right yeah one of the things that i think about a lot within this field is this uh, this us and them mentality of like their mm. therapists and everyone else, right? That we are somehow, there's some idea, I, I think it's completely false, but a, an idea that therapists are more together, that we're more, that we're sort of a special, uh, you know, kind of person that is different, right? We must have our shit together more than your average person, which I 100% false in my opinion. But there's there's a there's a divide between therapists and everyone else. And there's a you know, I think and one of the places I I see that is, um, you know, I think there's a lot of stigma still around therapists talking about our own mental health experiences, certainly for people who have, uh, you know, more highly stigmatized diagnoses. Uh, I Mm. think it's very taboo still, um, you know, for a therapist like, say, to talk about having bipolar disorder or something that's not um, something we allow much space for. Um, But I think, you know, in terms of all the other ways that that contribute to an us and them mentality that uh, there's a huge financial privilege aspect, you know, when people who are getting into the field are people who, you know, are are just much better resourced, who are more financially privileged, who have better access and have, you know, probably historically throughout their lives had better access to money, um, then there's no way to keep that from creating like a classed element, you know, especially when we're talking about a setting where people are coming in um, for low cost therapy, you can't get out of that us and them space completely because you know, there, it, there's a real demographic divide that's being maintained by who's, you know, being allowed and, and supported in getting into the field. This is, there's still this sense of, I, we have an issue with really being seen in our humanity. And I, I when I, when I teach practicum, I, I'm like, you know, raise your, raise your hand if you felt like, oh, I shouldn't, who do you think, if you ever thought, who do you think you are to be getting in this field? You should have it all together. And they slowly right, will right, raise right. their Everyone. hands. Everyone, yes. And I say, listen, here's the deal. We are all hot messes. 
There's mm-hmm. the camp that knows it and they're doing the work. They see it as a mm-hmm. lifelong process. They're owning it, living it, and and paying it forward. And then there's the the other camp that says, "No, I'm mm-hmm. fine. Don't be in that camp." Right. <laughs> you know, I love just, that. Like, just don't yes. be in that camp. Because I remember sitting yeah. with someone I just hired, and there was something big that just happened. And I said, and and recognizing there was a big trauma in their story, and they're like, "Well, I'm over it by now." And and it was pretty significant childhood trauma. And I remember, okay, this I need to help this person find their way out because this isn't going to work because they were so protected. But there's a reason behind that. So there's a reason why folks in our field are so guarded because our culture as a whole still devalues the struggles of the psyche. And and I think again, I think we're at a really cool time where there's a lot of reckoning happening and I'm I'm here for it but this is just our field has co-opted what what culture says is pull up your bootstraps mm-hmm. get your stuff together push through be the cog don't complain you know right. don't buck the system do what you're told you know be the good soldier and right. yeah it's really it's killing us it's killing mm-hmm. us mhm you know, what from what I've seen, just from, you know, my own, you know, fairly limited experience in community mental health, but also that of, you know, friends in the field, um, that mentality that you described is so prevalent. And I and it's and it's a little bit insidious, because I don't think I think a lot of the people who are actually espousing that don't believe that that's what they're doing. Like they believe that they're trauma informed. They believe that, uh, you know, that it's a supportive environment and come talk to me anytime. But that's not really what's that's not really what's actually happening. You know, Um, I'm having a moment here because I think what you said is is really spot on that we can talk vulnerability, talk trauma-informed, whether it's in mental health spaces, and I see this a lot in corporate spaces, education spaces, nonprofit spaces with leaders that know the right words to say, but to really live it, we're struggling. We're really struggling with that. And there isn't permission to do that. And and what I'm seeing actually is more is is there's a new generation of students and some folks coming up saying, no, I I want something different. And I'm like, Man, I didn't have the. I, I was I was the cog in the wheel. I was the soldier right. saying, "I'll cross the finish line, even if I'm crawling. Mm. That's okay. Mm-hmm. If I was burnt out, permanently blew a fuse, mm-hmm. and like it was a cool thing. No, that's so sick. I was embodying that for so long, and I'm still undoing that. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, you know, just thinking about it from that part's perspective, right? Because I think some people, like you're describing that sense of like leading with that good soldier kind of part at, you know, in certain mm-hmm. contexts at certain times, um, which I think is a very common experience. And then for me, I'm very, I think what I noticed in my community mental health experience is I, um, what gets elicited for me is a more is that I do a lot of like pushback on authority. That's just my, my, it's sort of my go-to. And like, that's, there was a, I think there was a space for that um, in, you know, the workplace that I'm thinking about. I think that was important in some ways. And then I know for me, it just became very polarized where it was like, Mm. and this was the thing that meant that I, that I felt like this was the signal that I had to get out and be done um, was that I was just like, anytime anyone asked me to do anything, it could be reasonable, totally reasonable request, right from a supervisor. And I was just like, 
how dare you, you know, internally, how dare you, um, you know, ask me to, you know, do this entirely reasonable thing. And, and inside myself, I was just like, this is, I'm just too polarized. I have to, I have to be done with this. Um, but I think for me, it was a, it, what happened was just that I did not feel respect and faith and trust in that leadership. And so it really elicited that for me of like, I'm just gonna, you know, slough off any, anything that you ask me to do, because I don't, I have no buy in to this anymore. You know, in hindsight, too, I have a lot of compassion for even your former bosses. Because mm -hmm. just like the student that you mentioned, who came to speak to your graduating class, was, you know, in a major leadership position, were they taught how to do leadership, let alone totally. do the notes? Yeah. And what does it mean to really build right. community? What does it mean to really cultivate psychological safety? Like, I think that's part of the problem. Yes. We know how to recite it. You and I, we know how to take that test. We can do the bullet points of trauma-informed, you know, with trauma-informed practices. I talk a lot about trauma-informed culture and the leadership spaces. We can, we can say, oh, this is what psychological safety is. We can teach it. Can we live it? Have we been right. taught to really mess up and normalize that even in practicum, right? Depending on your practicum professors, how they gave you feedback. It was, you know, what do you need to do better? Or what's your theory and how you were close to your theory or not? It wasn't like, what was that like for you to be in the room? What did you feel in your body? I noticed that it was hard to track. Like you kind of disappeared. What was going on with you there? You know, but it's always just like checking the boxes of how to be like, how do we perform? And it, so there's so many layers of how we, you know, whether it's leading in an organization, leading at the schools, leading in the classroom, that it, it really is. We're told we're taught what to do, how to do the right thing, but we're right. not really encouraged to be who we are and integrate. We, we talked about integration at my school, but if, if that integration wasn't approved of, you know, <laughs> Mm -hmm. right. it, it got a little it got a little messy and complicated so and I appreciate your knowing like you checking in and realizing wow anyone asking anything was eliciting a strong response because the the trust was gone the breach was so big and so many people are sucking up toxic kind of dynamics because they need the job or they need to finish their right. hours. They're like, right. listen, I got to get 500 more hours. So sometimes I'm working with folks, whether as, as a client or they're they're getting certification and something, they're like, like, what are we going to do to help you care for you? I understand this milestone. And is it worth it? Is it worth it? What are the right. stakes if you slow down? And having those hard conversations versus it's like, well, if I slow down, I've failed. And like, isn't that sad? Right. It's like, that's, that's right. where we're at. If I choose my well-being or to not work in a place that's making me feel horrible about myself, that's a failure. That's where we're kind of right. We've been at that for a while. And I think that it's so it is so challenging because uh, to be able to really uh disinvest from that messaging, right? That that it's if you slow down, you're a failure. While at the same time, as you were saying, people need these jobs for the money right. to the survive. Financial constraints, and yeah. Exactly. And for me, you know, I was very fortunate in that I could, you know, I, I shifted over. I did the thing where I worked part time at my 
you know, crisis job, community mental health job, and then, you know, built my private practice and then shifted over to my private practice full time nice. when I was done. But I did have, I absolutely had a financial cushion to take, to take whatever hit I was going to take temporarily in order to build my practice. And it was a, a, a freedom that I very, very much aware that many people don't have. Mm -hmm. I think that that's something that is very, uh, disquieting reality about um, some kinds of personal and professional growth work, right? I had the space to be able to say, I'm at the point where this job is bringing out the worst in me, and I'm not who I want to be when I show up here, and therefore I'm going to leave. Not everyone has that. And so what, what, then people are faced with doing say if I had been in that same position but I didn't have the financial cushion right then I'm faced with the possibility of I have to look at this job isn't bringing it's bringing out the worst in me I'm not who I want to be when I show up here and I still have to show up here tomorrow you know it's hard to be motivated to want to do that internal work if that's your reality well I, I think I was shocked about the number of people who are in our field who aren't willing to do the inner work. Yeah. And 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 I say this with reverence and respect because I get why. But that the gatekeepers, the professors, the supervisors, the directors, all these people who have had eyes on us as we've, you know, you know, check yes. the boxes. You know, my program didn't want to require therapy. Um, the director at the program said, listen, I don't want people to do it because they're dialing it in, but I'm strongly encouraging it. And I, that actually said, you know what, I'm going to go do that because, like, so I pursued that. And, and I'm someone who I was, I've been to therapy since I was a kid. So, you know, right. <laughs> so it, it was, and I've learned a lot of what I didn't want to do as a therapist from those times too. Um, yes, yes. You know. <laughs> but there is this sense in our culture that, you know, because if we're not looking within and you and, you know, again, with IFS, and I'm also a practitioner of Brené Brown's shame resilience theory, these parallel process models, EMDR is a little bit more of a, um, you know, phase mo modality. Mm -hmm. But so many of the theories out there, we can do and, and, and be detached from who we are. But the yes. theories that call us like to really to, to really be proficient and and deep in your shame resilience theory to in IFS and you know, I'm in I'm in Resma Monacum somatic abolitionism so it's a lot of what are you feeling U turn U turn U turn mm -hmm. pause slow down um, mm -hmm. it it's you know the efficiency part of supremacy culture has so impacted our field and the yes. fear of being seen not good enough because we are doing what we're asking other people to do. I think it's perpetuating the stigma of mental health. If people in our own field aren't doing it and shouting from the mountaintops, they're proud and they're learning and this is normal and a part of caring for ourselves in a really messed up world. Right. So there's something about that that I, I keep running into folks and I'm like, ugh, I'm worried about that. I respect pauses. Don't get me wrong. I think we have ebb and flow, but to say I'm good, I got it. I, 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 that, that actually frightens me. Mm-hmm. 
it's interesting with IFS, I don't actually do right now. Um, I'm doing other trauma processing modalities primarily, and I don't do a lot of IFS with clients. But for me, the greatest help that it's mm. been is in my relationship with myself mm. and as a therapist in my relationship with what comes up and what comes yes. into the room for me. Yes. Um, and that is just so important. I mean, that is such a huge part of what we do. It's again, it's one of those things that I think, to, in my experience, at least there's some lip service given to that, that the real work is, is, hmm. uh, you know, encountering, you know, what comes up for yourself as a therapist and exploring that I, I do hear that. And I have heard that I, you know, I had a good supervisor, um, you know, for my internship associate, they changed the name here in Oregon just mm -hmm. recently um, years. Uh, but even in that context with with a supervisor who did really make space for that, it was there was a survival mode piece mm. um, of getting through those years. And I think that's really so challenging, true. too, because if you're in survival mode of like, OK, I'm working this really, you know, burnout instigating job and I'm getting paid badly and I'm trying to navigate systems, you know, that are overwhelming and, you know, all the red tape and all the things, then we're, we're creating a system where there's very little space for that kind of inner work, or at least there's not support The people aren't, you know, the people who are the leaders in those moments in people's careers are not scaffolding that uh, for you know, beginning therapists in the way that I think we could really need and could use so that people go into their own, you know, mid career and later career with uh, habits around that kind of self work. Right. But you know, the whole, you know, cram, write big papers and, you know, all this stuff, and then we check the boxes, and it's not checked. There isn't that sense. It's what do you got to do to graduate? Right. You know, and even even on the professor's side, I noticed, um, in a couple of the schools, it was, what do we need to do to get this person to graduate versus mm, how can mm -hmm. we release them? But yeah, if if our field from the get-go isn't really leading from that, how are we going to change the stigma and culture? How can we be a part of that change? We're going to be per perpetuating those stigmas too, whether it's around our own self-care, around our own worthiness and and our meaningful work and getting paid well so that we have insurance mm -hmm. and you mm -hmm. know can invest in things like retirement um, because there's this sense of oh you're in a noble field you're not going to get paid well but you know you're doing you're chucking things up you know for for the heavens and I'm like ew no <laughs> you know that's just yeah it's bad yes I. It's 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 interesting to me that you have that uh you said seminary background mm -hmm. is that that you yes because I'm very very interested in the whole all the stuff that comes up around the idea of this as a calling right so I know people have a lot of feelings about about that um and I I have colleagues who are like oh like just get rid of that idea and you know people have all all sorts of thoughts about it but so my background is I'm a third generation therapist um, wow. my grandparents were both yeah my grandparents were both psychiatrists back when you know that was psychiatrists were the only one ones doing therapy obviously there were no uh master's level therapists back in the 50s and 60s so my grandparents were both doing that my mom was a school counselor um for 35 years or so and then i tried to 
not do this. I was gonna, I was gonna escape and be an artist and, and then whatever I, you know, just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. But so, so I think, um, you know, I have a lot of for myself, really belief in this for myself as a lineage. Um, I do experience it as a calling. And I actually don't believe that the idea of it being a calling is in any way compatible with this idea of like, uh, you know, massive material self-sacrifice. Because when I think of someone traditionally who is called, right? So like if we have that framework of somebody being a spiritual leader in their community and a healer or whatever, whether that, you know, looks like a parish priest in, you know, Ireland or whatever else, you know, in some other part of the world where it's not Christianity, it's something else, you know, the obligation is that the community cares for that person. That person is making the sacrifice of this, you know, healing, being this guidance, you know, providing this guidance, being a healer, being a leader in their community, and in return, the community supports their needs. That is what a calling is about. It's not about you know, walking around in rags because, you know, of some sort of spiritual purpose. It's a relationship between the community and the person who is called to support the community. And that is what I feel like is broken down. You got it. There's nothing holy or healthy about that self-flagellation there too. No. No, I, I appreciate that. You got me thinking uh, about your, with your, your lineage in this. And because I had this memory of standing in front of my parents' record player, mm -hmm. which are really, really, this was a just a hard it was several years of really hard dark stuff going on had I think it was maybe Simon and Garfunkel playing and I made this commitment I wrote in my journal that I never want anyone else to be to feel as alone as I am right now and I wanted to you know walk along someone else in the future so and 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 that took the shape of politics at first you mm. know and so for me getting into more of a, of a more macro level and then went into issue advocacy advertising around issues and then i realized oh yeah yeah you know that's you know <laughs> that was just a, you know it was not as altruistic and then getting into international youth work and i lived overseas and then realizing i need i need more skills and tools to this i mean befriending and being with someone's great but there's so much that's you know goes on with the systems we're in and the brain and the body um and then and then realizing you know, Tip O'Neill, former majority leader in the House, that all politics are local and realizing, you know, that same thing with if we individually, if we are functioning well and thriving well and in our families with ourselves and our relationships, our families, that we're going to contribute well to the world. So that really led me, you know, to that work. And now I'm pulling it back again. Just I've had a few things happen since 2016 that, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. shaking things up. But but yeah, thinking mm -hmm. about the lineage, it, it 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 is this a different kind of activism around that, but it's still the stigma, and and even in the workplace, while outside of just mental health workplaces, there's still the stigma of like it's sexy now to talk about well being. It's really sexy. There's a big business in yes. it, big yes. money around this. I'm like, but I'm like, I don't want to be a part of something that's like a flash in the pan. I want to be a part of systemic change. And that's investment. That's not quick. That's not something that everyone can right. check up, go to a workshop and go through this course. And then they're, they're taken care of. It's, it's what does it mean as how we even how we work and how we interact with each other in different levels and the spaces we're in. That's pretty uncomfortable <laughs> right now for a right. lot of 
businesses and schools and faith communities, all these different educate, you know, all of it that have just been, this is how we've been doing it. So, but yeah, I just, I do think that place, if we do start like the U-turn you talk about for you in your sessions, if we had everyone doing that, if there were more U-turns, the YO U-turns and mm-hmm. people getting curious about what just happened, think about things that would or would not have happened in our culture that caused so much pain. Right. Well, and I think about that just to bring it back to the workplace piece, you know, that I wish, you know, I think about, uh, you know, the the community mental health system that I worked in was, uh, you know, crisis, the mobile crisis team oh, um, wow. here in Portland. And, and there were a huge number of people involved in that, that I really deeply respect and and like you know as people and had a good time with doing you know very difficult challenging work and just the level of dysfunction in that workplace you know again i described a little earlier was so much that i eventually just had to to disconnect from it sure um and and i wish that we had had that what you just described more of that kind of um leadership and encouragement to do those u-turns and look at what is coming up for ourselves and being given that example by the people you know in that in that setting to really explore that stuff in an honest way i frankly am not sure that's possible in the system that we have now. And I Mm -hmm. certainly don't think that it's possible if people aren't being paid adequately. I really believe that like the foundation is that people are getting a truly living wage, not just a step above poverty wages, you know, not a wage that would have looked good five years ago, but like a wage that is appropriate for, you know, the, the world that we're living in now and the work that they're doing. I don't, there has to be a material foundation to that, to a workplace that makes that the kind of inner work and the interpersonal work possible. Mm -hmm. And I think helping people, if they're in private practice, really have the business skills and the wherewithal of what does it mean to to do this? And then if people are in the agency work, what how do we really use the funds to cultivate tenure? And so what do we do? The the living wage, I mean, that's the thing I've been thinking about is – how do we, what do we do? I, I don't know where to start with that. Cause I even tried to pay my associates more when I brought them right. on. I'm like, oh, this cut the way that we, this model here sucks. So I, and I realized it wasn't adding up because of how expensive it was just to run the business yeah. and my time. Yeah. And so I don't know the answers, but I know that it, it needs to be deconstructed immensely. There's a whole world of complexity around that, and I'm certainly no expert. But um, you know, to me, one thing that I I think is really important is unionization. Hmm. Um, and I so and one of the pieces that I'm proud of that right before I left uh, my community mental health workplace, I was able to vote uh, in the union election, and and we voted unanimously no for way. the union, and that was an exciting moment. Yeah. Um, and I don't know how, you know, it's years of negotiations, of course, to get that sure. stuff established. But I think, uh, well, and I think about collective bargaining. Um, I think therapists should be able to al- be allowed to uh, bargain collectively with insurance companies. I think the antitrust there stuff we go. is That's it. hugely problematic. That's it. Um, you yeah. Nailed it. 
You know, gosh, my brain just exploded when you talked about that because Kaiser is a big provider here in the state. And I've worked with folks clinically and in a consulting level who work at Kaiser. And I also have many people who have Kaiser insurance who come to me to pay out of pocket because they can't get in. If they're not severe enough, they get in once every six weeks and they get to decide what's severe. And then the therapists have gone on strike a handful of times in different regions of Kaiser, but just to get paid more. And they're trying to work on decreasing their caseload. Man, there's such, yeah, I think you're right on the collective bargaining. That probably scares the poop out of them. Absolutely. Well, and I think, you know, it's not, I think, you know, we are looking at a moment in American history where I think unions have been very much defanged. But I think that moving back towards that mentality of collective bargaining and of looking at our collective interests and collective self-advocacy as practitioners of this field has to be key. And I think it's also an antidote, perhaps, to some of that martyrship mentality that, oh, I just have to take on, you know, whatever. Like that there's there's the sense in, you know, martyrship is a very individualist construct you know it's like uh very much so it's not one that has much to do with anyone else a martyrship mentality is about me right but collective bargaining that's that's about us and i think that there's some way in which that you know hopefully if there's some bite to it after some time you know there could be something that that helps shift the mentality over to like we're advocating for ourselves we're advocating for each other we're advocating for our clients we're advocating for people who need to be clients and aren't able to be clients in the system etc so and we need folks that are leaders and doing it well in the community mental health spaces to be leading the way to listen to them to follow them and to support them before we wrap up i would love to hear so uh I have this idea of the a therapist can't say that moment, mm-hmm. right? So it's a time when you say something, you hear it come out of your mouth, whether that's with clients, colleagues, whoever, and you have that instant sense of like, oh, that's not something a, a therapist is you know, supposed to say. Uh, so if you have a moment like that that you'd like to share, I'd love to hear it. Yeah, I think I touched on one, you know, that that grad schools are businesses, you know, it's kind of like, you know, yes, but yes, there's one that I said, and maybe I had that a collective, oh, no, I just said that out loud. But now I kind of own it a little bit more. But I will tell people you have a master's degree in CYA. That's it. You were taught how to not lose your license. And that bothers people. Initially, but I wanted to actually be someone that's helpful to say, listen, let's move from this mindset of how to keep your license and not leave the ethics and legal stuff that we've learned that's so important and sets us apart from a lot of other folks in the space. But to recognize that we've been taught to be scared about losing our license and then that fear can be very generative in how we show up in our work and in our relationship to ourselves and how we see ourselves in the system versus reclaiming that this these credentials that have been hard fought for isn't just to CYA, but is a platform right. to deepen our own personal journey and professional journey. So it's, it's an opportunity to name that because I, when I said that, I was in front of a bunch of people who teach <laughs> programs. <laughs> <laughs> right. When I first so they said don't it, want to hear that about the. They were yes. a little offended. Um, and I was like, uh, I mean, but like, think about it. Like, you know, when you teach us about when people are suicidal or what happened, you tell us all these worst case scenarios and yeah. read from the magazine that has everyone's, you know, who's lost their license. There's a magazine called The Therapist. Yes. And it has all the people, mm-hmm. like their names and number. They'll read that. They read that to us at our program. Like, don't end up in the centerfold. <laughs> 
We had to, on our very first class uh, that was the introduction to the program, our professor brought up the Oregon State Board, like, uh, sanctions website because it has everyone's you know sanctions stuff public and we looked at all that projected on the screen <laughs> so i think you're i think you're a hundred percent right i love that moment there's so much that that degree represents that is not about who we are as clinicians that's not about being a therapist in the sense of doing the work and you know even there's research that says right that like most of what we do in our master's program does not help us become better therapists. And I think most of us know that. Yeah, I think being able to acknowledge that is, uh, you know, a very important step towards hopefully making some kind of uh, transformative change in this field, eventually uh, working against these the huge institutional inertia that we have in front of us. So I, I really appreciate you bringing that in. Well, I really appreciate you showing up with this podcast and having these conversations. I can tell it's going to be transformative and hopefully helpful to others in our field uh, to feel a little less alone. I hope so. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Mm, thank you. You can find Rebecca, her practice, and her podcast, The Unburdened Leader, at RebeccaChang.com. If you're enjoying what we're up to here at A Therapist Can't Say That, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show on whatever your preferred platform is for listening to podcasts. And it would be especially great if you would share the show with a therapist you know would really benefit from hearing this message. You can find me, Reva Stout, at IntoTheWoodsPortland.com. If this episode brought something up for you that you'd like to share with me, or if you want to tell me about your own A Therapist Can't Say That moment, I'd love to hear from you. So please feel free to shoot me an email or send me a voice note at reva at intothewoodsportland.com. Talk to you next time.